Good evening to you all. My name is Jim Partridge. I'm one of the elders here at City. It's really my pleasure to be among you here tonight and uh, with the privilege of bringing you God's Word. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we are going to have one final message in 2 Peter. I'll be uh, addressing a passage from there. We'll talk about that in a minute, but the first question I have for you is, what do you know? What do you know? You might hear that greeting. Uh, I don't know that it's a particularly Pittsburghese uh, greeting, but when I get asked that question, of course, I, I don't know how to answer, and so I often will say, I don't know nothing. I don't know much of anything. So it made me think, who was it that I always used to hear on TV who said, I know nothing. So I googled that, and guess what popped up in my sermon research? Sergeant Schultz, Hogan's Heroes in the 1960s, was a, uh, a TV show. Uh, I don't need to go into the details of it, but Sergeant Schultz was a Nazi concentration camp guard who would say, I know nothing, I see nothing. And that's what just popped into my mind. The other things I found when I Googled that was a, uh, a quote called the Socratic Paradox. This was attributed to Socrates. I know that I know nothing. And I also found out, this is pretty amazing and contemporary, that there was actually at one time in our American history in the 1850s, there was a political party that came to be known as the Know Nothing Party. It was called the Know Nothing Party because these people, when they would be asked uh, about their meetings and stuff like that, would say to the media, at the time, I know nothing. They actually were uh, very much against uh, immigration. They were very much uh, uh, anti-minority. It was just reminded me of, of the way things, uh, some things just don't change in our country, right? Anyway, by contrast, by great contrast, the passage that we're going to look at tonight has a lot to say about knowing something. In fact, knowing the greatest thing in the world, which is the knowledge of God. Second Peter, the letter that we consider, claims that we can, even though we are sinners in need of grace, we can actually have a knowledge of God and His Son Jesus that provides all that we need for life and godliness that guards us and frees us from sin, that draws us into, get this, the very life of God Himself. It's a bold claim and it's a great deal. But that's what Second Peter, and especially Second Peter 1, offers us. So I wanted to return to this passage. I actually preached on part of this passage back in early June to look at a recurrent theme that you find in this book. John McCombs preached the last section last week, and you may recall that the end of the book, uh, which we will look at, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, as well as the very beginning of the book, talk about the knowledge of God. Peter ends, opens and ends his letter uh, in this way. And I believe in this idea of knowledge of God, knowledge of the Lord Jesus, knowledge of Jesus Christ, this is Peter's language for union with Christ, which is a doctrine um, 
that is throughout the scripture. It's not explicitly stated here, but you will find it on every page of the New Testament. It's spoken about in different ways. For Paul, his favorite phrase of speaking about union with Christ was simply in Christ. You'll find that phrase frequently in Paul's writing. Well, in Peter's writing, I believe the knowledge of God is his word for union. Now, I spoke back in June on cultivating uh, union, uh, our union with Christ uh, as a way to address the gap between what we profess and how we live. Tonight, I want to try and flesh that out a little bit more and perhaps give us some more practical aspects to help us apply the very end of the book, which says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read the text, and then we will respond as we normally do, affirming that this is the word of the Lord. 2 Peter 1, I'm going to read 2 through 8, and then we will read the last verse of the letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may, have, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final verse of 2 Peter, but grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Je Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So I uh, provided a, an outline for you, and that's kind of where I'm going to pick up at this point. As I said, my thesis tonight, my, my main point is this, a true knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is both given to us and grown in us through our relationship with Him, through our union with Him by faith. And let me just lay out several sub-points under this idea. The first is, we need to understand this knowledge, verse 2 through 4 tells us, it is by grace through faith. It's not something we generate. His divine power gives us this knowledge. That's the indicative idea that I mentioned last time. It's the objective fact. If you claim to be Christ. At the moment that you place your trust in Him, you are given a knowledge of God that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. You're given communion with the living God. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. 
receive your union with the living Christ. I'm not going to spend more time with these verses. We touched on those more the last time I preached. But secondly, true biblical faith, verses 5 through 7 tell us, is not a naked faith. It's a supplemented faith. That's what the text says. A naked faith, I think that was John Calvin's uh, term to say that our faith is united with works. Not that the works comes before the faith, the works flow out of faith, right? But works are there nonetheless. Notice that Peter says, make every effort to do what? To supplement your faith. There's other places in the letter, at least two that I can remember, where Peter says, be all the more diligent to do things. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. That was our main verse last time I preached. You may be uncomfortable with this idea. You may be thinking, am I getting toward preaching works righteousness? No, friends. One writer said, grace Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Effort is a necessary part of our union with Christ. These are the imperatives that follow and flow out of the indicative. We've got to work our union, friends. That just happen. We have to work it. Well, look at verse 8. Verse 8 gives us both a positive and a negative point here. First of all, Such faith, faith working itself out with these qualities, well, that keeps us effective and fruitful in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's going to require maintenance. We're going to talk a little bit about how do we maintain our union. The downer in this passage is our our falling condition is right here, however, in verse 8, because we can be ineffective. We can be unfruitful in our knowledge of God, can we not? The older I get, the more I realize how little I know myself. How little I know my wife. How little I know my God. I don't know nothing. And yet, I think I know everything many times. I think I've got this, right? I I understand things. It's not the case. We have a defective knowledge because of our sin. I ran across a a new quote for me from C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. Uh, He doesn't have to be mentioned in every sermon, but uh, he often is. But this was uh, out of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's a very honest quote. C.S. Lewis says, Those like myself, whose imagination far exceeds their obedience, are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than any we have really reached. If we describe what we've imagined, we may make others and make ourselves believe that we've really been there, and so fool both them and ourselves. Friends, we need to realize that apart from growing in Christ, growing in our union, maintaining our union, Our knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourselves will be defective. It will lead to the things like in chapter 2, the false teaching. 
that Peter rails against in chapter 2, from the false teaching that we all know is out there. So don't neglect your union, friends. And then finally, the last verse of 2 Peter tells us that we're called to growth. We are called to growth at any age, at any stage. And that we bring, we help point to Christ and give Him greater glory as we grow in our union with Him. It's been said, if you're growing, you're stagnant. That's not a good thing. We are called to growth in Christ. Grow your union. So how, Pastor? How do we grow our union? I'd like to touch a little bit on uh, what we might call the art of abiding. Now, this is not in our passage, but I'm taking this out of the, the call to grow. How do we grow in our union with Christ? I think of uh, John 15, when the abiding chapter. But, uh, you know, there's many, many metaphors for this doctrine of union or Christ's wonderful doctrine. I want you to think of uh, three water activities here, and I'll give you a little pop quiz here. Is the Christian life meant to be more like rafting, power boating, or sailing? Um, we were just on our lake up in Maine. We have a wonderful privilege of, of having a cottage on the lake up there, and we see these activities all the time. Uh, Tracy and I don't necessarily raft, but we take an inner tube out there. She takes a surfboard, and we just kind of chill out on the lake. Um, you might look at my boat up there and say it's kind of not really a power boat. It's a little 14-foot fishing boat with an 8-horse Yamaha on it. It's not much power, but it gets me where I want to go. And I enjoy a little bit of wind in my hair when I get that thing up to full speed. Now, sailing is not something I have done, but I've heard it's really, really cool to do, a lot of fun to do. It takes a lot of skill to do, right? So, what is the Christian life to be like? Which one of these three things? Well, think of this. Rafting is totally passive, is it not? What do you do when you raft? You just go wherever the water takes you. That's why we may like power boating a little bit more, right? We are in control of the power and the direction. Well, how about sailing? Well, some of you sailors out there may say, yeah, I'm a good sailor. I, can, I know what to do. I know how to get that boat going where I need to go. However, sailing, as opposed to power boating and rafting, the sailor is utterly dependent on a force outside of themselves. No wind, no sailing, right? And sailing, I think, is a wonderful metaphor of union with Christ. In that, yes, we're dependent on the wind, but when we sail, there are many, many things a sailor does to make that boat move. You can what's called draw the sail. If the wind's against you, you tack so that you go back and forth. And it's just incredible to me to see people sailing on our lake, going all over the place. I, I'm a little bit jealous. Sailing is the art of abiding in Christ. Learning to sail uh, is a great metaphor.
for how God supplies the wind. He supplies relationship with himself. He supplies the grace. We are called to apply that grace. Friends, union with Christ utilizes also the means of grace. We do not have time tonight to go into uh, these in depth. These would be the spiritual disciplines. And you've probably heard a lot of sermons about the need to read your Bible and the need to pray and the need to seek fellowship and community of worship and the sacraments. But can I encourage us all to try and look at these disciplines, these things that sometimes feel dry, sometimes feel like duties. Can we look at those through the lens of our relationship with the one who says he is in us and we are in him? So when you read the scriptures, which tell us that it's living and active word of God, do we read with expectation that the one who formed these words is in the word, the true word of God, Jesus Christ? Do we read with expectation that we're going to meet him in the word? When you pray, when you pray to your Father in heaven, when you have a conversation with a Father who, the word says, delights to hear your prayers, is it out of duty or is it out of communion with your Father? Let me just tuck in here a little um, encouragement. Uh, this coming January, Lord willing, we will be hosting in this building uh, a seminar called A Praying Life Seminar. Um, it's based on a book that perhaps many of you are aware of by Paul Miller, A Praying Life. And there's a PCA pastor named Bob Allums who uh, is a praying man. It's one of my prayers for myself and for this congregation that we would be a praying congregation. And this man would be the first one to say he doesn't do it well, but God has used him to lead many, many people and congregations into being more praying congregations. And a lot of it, friends, if you've read that book, A Praying Life, it's really about how to relate to your Heavenly Father. That's what prayer is all about. One person has said that prayer is to union what conversation is to marriage. That's where the vitality is. And the reward of our praying is communion with the living God. The fellowship community that we so enjoy in this church. It's one of the hallmarks of this church. I'm so grateful to God that people love spending time together. It's a great thing. But when you think of it in terms of our union with Christ, think of this. That person that you're talking to is made in the image of God, as you are. And if they profess Christ and you profess Christ, the Christ in you is speaking to them. We can speak the gospel, words of encouragement, sometimes words of rebuke. We can be real with one another because of our union with Christ and because we're not, no man is an island. We are not in union with Christ alone, we're in union with his body, the church.
Before I go to one last means of grace, I would just like to, to mention this because I think it's an important thing that I've personally been struggling with a little bit. Um, going back to the sailing analogy, what do you do when there is no wind? Sailors will tell you that's a problem, obviously. Uh, some people call it, there's actually a, a word for that, it's called the doldrums. There are places in the ocean where there's very little wind and sailors find themselves not going very far, very fast. When our spiritual lives, we need to expect there will be times when we feel dry, when we feel disconnected. And that's not outside the providence of God, friends. God gives us a wilderness. He gives us the doldrums. Why? To work against our inherent self-sufficiency, our inherent tendency to think that we've got this abiding thing down. We're in control. We're not. We're not. The doldrums teach us what it means. It trains us to abide. Well, finally, let me just apply this as we move into uh, a great part of our worship. Do you come to this place expecting to hear a great sermon? Maybe you didn't tonight. I hope you heard the Word of God. But if your posture is coming here to evaluate the preaching, to evaluate the music, to see a good friend, there's many good reasons to come here. Do you come because God in His wholesome presence has promised to be here? Matt mentioned this morning, I believe, in his sermon, the idea of a covenant renewal ceremony. That's what we looked at in Nehemiah. Well, some people say that every worship service itself is a covenant renewal ceremony. Do we believe that the living God of all the earth is meeting with us here? If we do believe that, then we are in covenant with Him. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And there's terms and conditions, yes. But the covenant of grace means when we come to worship, we are meeting with our Savior. We're meeting with Him who died and rose again on our behalf. So we're literally in the presence of God right now. And in a way that I don't think anyone can understand, we are now going to partake of a sacrament. A sacrament that Naaman will explain, but a sacrament which is meant to increase and deepen our communion with the living God. Spiritual food for hungry pilgrims. The body of Christ. The blood of Christ. The reformers struggled over how to look at this sacrament. What we believe in our church, what we've landed on is that the spiritual real presence of Jesus Christ is in what we're going to partake of right now. Our union with Christ makes it all the more sweet. After I pray, Naaman will come and lead us in the sacrament. Let's pray.